0: This show is sponsored by FIS. If you want to reach the future faster, you must start early. For those who do, FIS brings you Rise. Insightful articles, best practices, research, and intelligence to help you stay current and rise above the competition. Subscribe at FISglobal.com insights. Or follow FIS Global on social media to get notified as soon as content is released. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. is breaking banks.
1: Welcome back to Breaking Banks. This week, we wanted to delve into the impact that the coronavirus pandemic has had on branches and what are the options for uh, branch networks moving forward, um, given that digital has become a stronger part of day-to-day banking. Joining us uh, on the show today is uh, Mark Aldred. He's the head of international sales at Origa, um, which is a leading European supplier of uh, bank software and technology solutions Um, and Mark has uh, over 30 years experience in banking technology including um, work with FIS and ACI worldwide. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi Brett, really good to be here, thank you. Now, obviously, uh, Mark, you know, we've seen a decline in branch operations uh, in most developed economies, um, certainly, uh, you know, in the US, in the UK, the US shattered a, a record number of branches in 2020, 3,300 branches alone in, in 2020. Um, of course, in the UK, we've seen about uh, 50 branches um. Each month uh, closed since January 2015, more than one branch a day there. So, um, you know, are we fighting a losing battle with sort of trying to, you know, keep the branches relevant in the face of, you know, clear digital adoption, um, you know, and more reliance on digital technologies that we saw during the pandemic? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that we're fighting a
3: battle at all. I suppose it would be my, my first comment. This this all started BC before COVID. So rightly we're talking about the impact of COVID, and and rightly it's been massive. Uh, and Absolutely, it's, it's accelerated behaviours that already existed, and you've already highlighted, Brett, that that those behaviours come out of increasing adoption of of more digital channels, more digital banking so there's there's a a whole demographic moving very rapidly already moved in fact away from branches uh, and embraced uh, mobile banking and and other forms of digital engagement so the the battle if we're fighting it i think that you know the first the first round is has been about these branch closures that you've just mentioned and i think that's a a blunt instrument to address the problem of cost the problem of lack of usage um, and i think it addresses some of the problems uh, I think we need to rephrase the battle, reframe the battle, and, and we need to look at branches in a different way. So, you know, am I going to chain myself to my local branch door and say, don't close this? No, you know, there are too many branches, they're too big, they're in the wrong places, they're too expensive, and it's not the way that most people choose to branch, uh, to bank, excuse me. But I think there is some argument that we can keep them relevant, we can change their nature, we can. Uh, remodel them. We can change the economics, and we're working with customers to do all of those things in parallel with, of course, them offering better, stronger mobile propositions, better proper digital engagement and omni-channel engagement with their customers.
1: Yeah. So my my position's always been, you know, we we've had for some time people talking about building the Apple stores of banking and and so forth. And we did have a few attempts at new types of uh, um, branch designs emerge over the last decade or so. OCBC did Frank in Singapore. Um, you know, we have had Citibank launch a flagship store in New York City uh, just just uh, um, over, I think it was November, December. Um, so there, there has been sort of this push of branch of the future. But, um, you know, the, the, what COVID sort of establishes is that the, the reason people have... Um, You know, they slowed their branch usage. The the reason that footfall traffic has declined is not a design problem necessarily, but a behavioral one. The fact that you know we have these new channels, particularly mobile, that allows us to do things that we we could only do in the branch previously. So now that we have this this capability and more people are learning to use these tools then obviously they need to rely on the branch less and it's more convenient it's faster potentially to do it on on the mobile so it appears to be a behavioral issue rather than a design issue in my mind but um you know where are the technologies uh, particularly in respect to the stuff that you guys are working on um, such as the next gen branch solution that you you've uh, created um are the, are those technologies reversing that trend or it is more that um you're right sizing branch networks and using the technology smarter from an operational cost perspective
3: yeah I, I think it's a little bit of both so you you're absolutely right that that it's a behavioral change it's it's not that that um you know branch remodeling has been going on for decades um and we haven't seen many really successful rollouts we haven't seen people change the nature of banking we've seen lots of coffee lounges we've seen lots of of other innovative um ideas but these have all been about giving the branch in its old form a new lease of life so you mentioned technology and certainly Uh, the technologies inside branches and the technology outside branches, and I think about self-service, customer-activated terminals owned by banks as opposed to the ones in their pockets. These devices should be treated like all other digital channels. They should be architectured, they should be integrated in the same way, and they should be uh, made available to clients, customers, so that they can navigate the journey with the bank that they want. Increasingly, that's a digital journey rather than a physical in-branch journey. But yes, I think I think the, the trick is to rethink what branches are for, um, not to try to um, make branches uh, to extend the life of branches in their current form. And what we found is the technology that our customers have deployed to support um, terminals in the bran- in their branches to support assisted self-service devices to support self-service ATMs. All of these technologies. Uh, can be extended to provide a different kind of branch. And what do I mean by different? I mean, first of all, more cost effective, lower cost. So we've been able to reduce the cost of of the branches of some of our customers by considerable margins. We've been able to extend the hours uh, where the service is provided uh, By those branches to the customers and bring new services to the branches, so it's not the same old, same old. It's a whole range of new services. You mentioned the the iStore, and that's a really important uh, point. I think Apple tried to rethink retail, uh, and Apple retail accounts for
1: thirty four percent. I think at last count of Apple's at up- right, world but they have revenues. very different products from banks, right? You know, yes, I mean, they, yeah. I, I'm, You know, people um people camp outside of Apple stores waiting for the iPhone. I, I don't imagine people doing that for a checkbook. Yeah, and and ironically, when when COVID struck and the Apple i stores were closed, Apple saw a decline in the
3: sale of certain of their products. So right. certain of their products, their customers need to go into the branch to try on, and the watch is a particular example of this. And and they're publicly quoted as saying that someone turns sales. Have been because of the lack of a retail presence through through COVID. So again, I'm, I'm not suggesting that um, they have the same kinds of products and services branches, but there are certain things for Apple and I think for banks, the customers are much more comfortable going and seeing and touching and and, and hearing from people directly, being in the in, in a secure environment. So so yeah, the, I still is an attempt to rethink. So, um, sorry, go ahead, Brett.
1: No, no, I, I I'm I'm interested in, in this it would be very good to see some research some hard research on this um but you know th- there there are some fairly complex products that people now buy online that y- that were deemed impossible to buy online previously because of their complexity um you know a good example is a motor vehicle tesla Right, that a large percentage of um, Tesla um, Teslas are ordered um, online, either you know through a web page or online store. Um, I remember back in um, the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, no, it was early early 2000s. Um, doing work with General Motors on internet uh, website development um, with Motor Media, and it was it, the the articulation from General Motors is a, a person will. Never buy a car online. This is never going to happen. And of course, now um, you know if you you look at the Chinese EV market and and Tesla, you know that that's uh, that's no longer the case. So uh, why I'm raising this is what are the products or experiences in banking that still require face-to-face interaction because of their complexity? Because, um, you know, that's a statement that we hear a lot from branch operators, that there are certain things that people prefer to go into a branch for still in the digital age. But I wonder if there's any sort of agreement on what those things are, because If there were, then we could definitely start to specialise branch operations around those types of engagements and products, but um, beyond... you know, people arguing for a counter opening and your first mortgage, and account opening is already flipped digital in terms of um, in the US and the UK in terms of primacy. Um, you know, so you then left with sort of the first mortgage and maybe your first uh, discussion with a uh, you know a financial planner on investments um, and asset classes, but. Beyond that, what what are the actual experiences in a bank where people feel that they need to go to a bank for those products? Do, do, do you have any data behind that?
3: Well, I think I think first of all, it's the responsibility of banks who wish to continue to serve their customers through branches to to answer that question themselves and and to do it through innovation, to do it through bringing new capabilities, new products and services potentially to market by inviting others to use their facilities in order to provide those other things. I, I think you know, you said account opening has flipped to, to online and, and that's largely true, but it's flipped to online for a percentage of people, a very high percentage of people, but for a small percentage of people, I don't know what that number is, perhaps you do, 100% of that group won't um, open an account online.
1: So So in the the States, it's still, uh, as of 2020, it was 66% had gone digital. So, you know, we can do the masses, 34% that are still. you know still using physical, but it's been you know it's dramatically changed. If you look at it on a trajectory basis, then you'd have to assume that over the next few years that almost no one would enter a branch to open a bank account, right? On, on a, so, on a so the question basis. is so
3: the question is, is that an argument to support the closure of branches now or is it an argument to support the rethinking of branches from now on? To deliver a better range of services like the iStore, including, for example, supporting customers of mobile banking who have technical challenges that um, can't, can more easily be addressed
1: in an iStore environment by a, a genius. Uh, so Well, a you know, we, we do. You know, the genius bar concept I think has merit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, so, if we look at um, you know, the, the, the Apple store model, um, you know, when you go into a genius bar, yes, you want to buy, but from a service perspective, I think there's an analogy for, for banking, it, you know, is increasingly as we become more reliant on technology for our banking, we are going to come against technology issues um, or functional issues um, that prevent us from getting stuff done. And most people will try and solve that online. They'll try the chat bot or whatever it is, but ultimately, if there's some something's gone wrong with a transfer, or you know, you you some money's disappeared and you can't figure out where it's gone, you, you're going to want to speak to a human either face to face or or on the phone, and so, um, but but you know increasingly if, if you're going into a branch to solve those sorts of problems the technical competency of branch staff is going to have to be considerably higher they may have to for example be uh, um you know au fait with resetting phones and figuring out why the phone's cache is not dealing with the data properly or dealing with some cybersecurity issues as an example so um you know uh, I I agree that there's a technology role here, but for those people left, um, you know, or those instances left where people are going to the branch, surely it requires not not just technology change, but also, um, you know, enhanced skill sets for the staff that remain in the branch. Absolutely. So most of our customers and most of those banks that innovate um and
3: deploy branch branch, um, banking um, environments that are innovating. Most of them worldwide are giving great new opportunities to their staff to retrain, to to take a different role. And there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. But technology is vital because if all you're doing is filling your branches with people who are expert in different topics, you still have the same economics. You still have the um, real estate and human cost of running those so technology can allow those resources to be pooled for a satellite hub uh, sort of adoption for branches where a a single branch may not have a single soul in it but it will have remote access to experts in financial products and services but also into the technical aspects of, of successfully using um, new uh, mobile products or
1: digital products that the bank may have launched or its partners may have launched so you so- you you, you talked there about digital only Branches, which is an interesting concept. Let's uh, play a brief clip from one of your clients, actually, Bank Career Gay, because they've just deployed their the first fully digital bank branches. And That's let's that. hear what they had to say about uh, how technology has changed their, uh, their approach to branches in the uh, Italian market.
4: Hi, I'm Silvia Gazzarelli doria Head of Channels and Digital Innovation at Banca Carige, an Italian retail bank with over 300 branches, 1 million clients, and over 3,000 employees. Last year, in November, we launched the, our first three smart branches using Riga NestGen branch, digital service solution, including secure integrated video banking in branch to provide a new channel to our customers that mix the physical and digital offer. This new branch banking model is expected to increase profitability for the bank with a fully digital branch reducing operating costs by 38% compared to traditional branches. We are proud of our Regas working with us to seize this opportunity for change, addressing the digital challenge through an approach capable of integrating the physical experience with digital tools and automation.
1: Okay, so Mark, um, you know, tell me a bit more about the. Uh, you know, we got a little bit of insight there, but tell me a little bit more about. You know, what what makes a digital only branch or a, a dominantly digital branch? Yeah, so in the case of Bank of Croatia, they've
3: adopted um, a number of different technologies. So, so the customer experience is is a little bit like um, a, a journey, um, customer journey. Here we go. There's there's a, a a language we're we're familiar with. At the heart of the Carrija branch is the principle that the customer should have access, if required, to a space where they can digitally, remotely access expertise, products and services. Um, a, A space where there is the technology which supports all of the peripherals required to ID them, to onboard them, to... To, uh, for them to make deposits, for them to withdraw cash if cash is their thing, um, or for them to engage with their bank. So, so, um, and in a hub and spoke uh, architecture, this means that the costs of those branches are very radically reduced. In the case of Bank of Carizia, the target is 38%. Uh, we believe that- 38%. Um, operational cost reduction. That's right. And our, that's and our pretty math, aggressive, right? Yeah. Well, again, that's their goal. And our math says that we can do better than that with full adoption of these kinds of technologies. So in Bank of Correja's case, this is not yet a 24 hour model, but it can be. And we have other cu- customers, other clients, for example, in Portugal with a 24 hour model, where they've seen dramatic increases in the footfall in their branches, in the deposits in their branches, especially for small businesses uh, who are still dealing in large part in, in cash, as, as well as in other payment forms. So, so adopted 24 hours and fully automated, remotely supported, with access to the expertise that is required, but at lower cost to the bank. Um, th- these banks are able to um, justify branches. Now, they're still closing branches, and the new branches are lean, small, different places, more appropriately cited. They can be shared with other financial institutions, and the hub model is one that's becoming increasingly tested. But Often technology is the barrier to that, so our technology has been the enabler for it in the case of yeah. the, the customers we've spoken about.
1: So th- this this hub and spoke model, Mark, uh, um, you know, I mean, in, in Bank 2, you know, back in 2010, you know, when I launched Bank 2.0, my first book, I, I talked about the fact that I I saw branches shrinking down to sort of be more like footprints for mobile phone stores for the majority of branches. But you'd have these big flagship stores uh, that are really brand, you know, brand proof, you know, like a big, uh, you know, as you say, the coffee shops, the the tons of tech. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about with Hub and Spoke? Or is it more of a, are you more talking about the technology? Uh, Both, both. So in technological terms,
3: um the the costs can be managed by adopting this approach. The expertise can be in, in a single place rather than multiple. Uh, in multiple places, so there's there's a human resource cost benefit. Um, there's a retraining and a and a, re, a repurposing exercise and, and and opportunity for staff, but also it's the opportunity to create again one, one of the three main objectives of the iStore uh, within the Apple um, world is is to be their brand embassies. That's the phrase that they use, and so too the the hub branches, the the large branches can be brand embassies. And and that is something you don't get as effectively through digital experiences. So a, a place where you're absolutely absorbed in the branch's brand. You're absolutely absorbed in what it is that that bank wants to be and how it wants to treat you. So branch, yeah, branch embassies.
1: I don't know. If the, I want the, to be absorbed in a bank branch <laughs> brand, man. You know, but um, but well, I appreciate they, they your obviously passion. have work. They obviously have work to do to make that brand uh, as yeah. attractive as some of the brands we've spoken about. T- tell me about continuity, though. In you know, because this is important. Um, you know, one of the things that. Um, would be really impressive if banks could do it. But, but you know, I haven't seen evidence of this is, you know, when you do have a problem that occurs in the digital sphere and you've sent information through to the call centre, you've engaged with the chatbot or something like that and you end up in a branch, one of the things that's most frustrating for customers is that they have to start from scratch. So does Origa tackle some of those things in terms of um, the continuity between the online digital experience and then the physical experience in the branch?
3: Yeah, so so there's a couple of things there. First of all, the, the um, emergence of different channels over the last 30, 40 years from telephone banking through internet banking through mobile banking. All of these have had two, two characteristics. The techni- technical characteristic is that they're a new silo, a new set of rails, a new infrastructure that are not integrated. And the customer service impact is that they're pushing the customer further away. They push them out the door, they, they don't meet with them face to face, you can't even speak to us anymore. So, so from a custo- these are unintended consequences of driving down cost and increasing efficiency and meeting customers' expectations. But from a, from a bank strict point of view, they've created technologies which are disparate and not integrated, and they've created distance between them and their customers. And of course, step into that space with a digital proposition. Uh, and it's, it's like bees around honey. It's, it's great for the, comp- for the new competitions, for the new entrants. Now, if you have a technology which isn't like that, which treats all of the channels in the same way, which integrates them, then the customer can have the journey that they want. So a customer uh, in a properly integrated uh, environment, an omni-channel environment, to use a cliche, um, can start a process on the mobile phone, and then when running into some kinds of problems, can engage in the branch to complete complete that transaction. So yes, all of the business services should be available across all of the channels and should be hosted in a common place. And and our architecture, our Riga's WWS, provides a common set of business services to all channels. So the customer gets the same experience. And if you can't get it from one channel, get it from another. And and because those are integrated, there aren't the the technical complexities or the audit risks of, of, of the thing going to hell. Can you so, see
1: in can you see in the future, Mark? I mean, um, you know, we've seen um, you know in in various markets, in the UK market and Australian market, we've seen some brands emerge with shared ATM uh, networks. Um, but you know, also we see uh, cre- credit unions and community banks using shared branching. Um, but do you see banks more and more opting to use sort of shared branch infrastructure like the post office, or you know, making their branches, multi-multi brand branches, because you talked about immersed in the brand. But if we continue to go this way, then you know that's one of the logical ways to reduce your network and reduced operational costs. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So already there are examples
3: worldwide of banks and other ATM deployers taking the view that the, these resources should be pooled. Uh, and we in Belgium, for example, are working with the four largest banks to deploy a neutrally branded pooled ATM infrastructure. So all of the ATMs of the four banks thrown into one pot, neutrally branded, and suddenly, they're not competing with it with one another. Three ATMs on the same street in the, in a city center, but they are able to deploy ATMs rurally, so
1: that every ninety five percent of Belgians will have an ATM within five k off. You can you can even have it that once you stick your debit card in, the branding comes up. You know, I mean, you know, with the screen yes. technologies and stuff we've got these days, you could definitely um, you yes. know, create a branded experience, not just on the screen, but you know, on the uh, the the ATM cowling or whatever you call yeah. it. Yeah, so so our technology allows technology
3: allows that to happen already. So at the bank level, at, at the individual level. So, so I will get the transaction, the, the brand image that that is appropriate to me, the transactions that I most frequently use, the experience that I want, the menu that I have selected. Um, and if I if if I have different abilities, maybe there'll be some um, accessibility um, changes in in the presentation at the device. So in the ATM world, yes, um, we can have um, we can have our own bank's experience if we choose to have it at any ATM. Technology allows that. The same technology allows the same impact with branches. Now here in the UK. Um, there's experimentation where branches, are, uh, banks are sharing hubs, usually hosted by post offices, the post office. Right, right. Uh, they used to have 20,000 outlets. They now have 11,000 outlets. So they themselves have gone through massive closures. But it is still one of our biggest...
1: Um, well, it's, Starling it's, Bank just announced they're working with um, the, the post office in the UK, which was exactly that. a surprise to everybody. So just well, finally, there, there, there is, but if I may on that point, yeah, sure. you know, if that doesn't give
3: at least some evidence that an old digital bank want, can, can get some value from a branch asset, from a branch estate. You know, the Starling example is a good one. I, th- I think neobanks, fintechs, and, and legacy banks look at one another jealousy. The the low costs and the fantastic functionality of some of the mobile uh, entrants is a great problem to the legacy banks. The branch infrastructure, the customer bases of the legacy banks are are obviously viewed jealously by by the new entrants. You you and I can agree to disagree on that one. But Um, but there we go. Starling have eleven thousand branches. So yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, So uh, let's uh, let's just wrap it up with one final question. Ten years time. What would you expect, just in in, 60 seconds, what would you expect um, branches to look like in terms of um, the volume of branches or the number of branches and their functionality? There'll there'll be very, very many less branches. Uh,
3: Those branches that there are will be in, in the most appropriate place, supporting small businesses as well as retail customers because the small business guys are the people who are actually being left behind by all of this. They will be shared. Absolutely. Either between um, sensible financial enterprises or between fintechs and legacy banks. And those kinds of collaborations are really important. And we're seeing a lot of them. Or between service service organizations that are compatible with with banking services. So less of them, smaller, um, more automated, 24-hour shared pop-up. And they will be designed in such a way that if if this branch in this model, in this community doesn't work, it can be transformed easily. It can be uplifted. It can be taken somewhere else it. rather than it being built in foundations that are 200 years old and right. 200 feet. Right. Deep. With the
1: big metal safe in the back. With yeah. the big, then the bandit screen. Yeah. So they make great restaurants and coffee shops, though, those old converted banks. So, um, Mark, uh, where can people find out more about uh, NextGen Bank, the solution that Auriga's uh, put together for digitally transforming um, the branches, bringing them up to 21st century tech? Yeah, well, come, come to our website. It's www.aurigaspa,
3: S-P-A, Uh Come and visit us. It's multilingual for, for people from different communities. And uh, you'll learn about it there. Google Banker Carreja Auriga and you'll see some exciting stuff. Um, and I'm sure we can post my details. I would love to hear from anybody and provide you with any
1: information that you might find useful. Thanks very much, Mark Aldred from Auriga Bank. Uh, Thanks for giving us a bit of an update on the branch uh, uh, post-coronavirus. And uh, we uh, we look forward to seeing the developments. Uh, You're listening to Breaking Banks. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors.
0: If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs, custom-tailored for your situation and your team, To bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com.
1: Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks, Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Technosocialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence and climate change are gonna shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Technosocialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future.
5: Thank you so much for joining me. I'm here with Robert E. Siegel, who is a lecturer in management at Stanford Graduate School of Business and a venture investor. I'd love to start with something that you're really well known for. It's something that you teach at Stanford called the industrialist dilemma. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Well, I I think a lot of people are familiar with the innovators dilemma who are in our audience, so what's the difference?
2: So the industrialist dilemma looks at what happens when every product or service that we make combines digital and physical. How you develop products needs to change, how you organize your company needs to change, and even how you lead needs to change. And there are very few products and services going forward that won't combine digital and physical. It's almost like this arbitrary wall that's been set up. And digitization is the sexy thing and the old, you know, stuff that we do physically was kind of unsexy. And yet you find companies that really do both well are the ones that are really winning in every sort of vertical, be it fintech, retail, um, healthcare. And so this is going to be really important for companies all over the world for the next couple of decades.
5: It's really interesting for banks to kind of wrestle with this too. COVID really accelerated banks kind of, kind of shedding their branch networks and, and going a little bit lighter there. But you're saying that it's really crucial to have both. Is that, does that apply to banking as well?
2: Absolutely. You will find that organizations will need to be able to find ways to touch their customers physically as well as digitally. And if they have an incumbent DNA, if they have a physical DNA, they've got to be much better at the whole digital front-end interface, as well as the back-end, to make it a great experience. So, you know, how, how they're going to deliver services, of no matter what it is that they deliver, how they will touch their customers, requires a new way of operating. And so we've studied companies like Charles Schwab, um, done some work with Wells Fargo, with Aether, with whom I'll be speaking today, uh, as well as looking at startups like Stripe and, and even, you know, larger, what I'll call, I guess, pay PayPal's kind of a first-generation disruptor, now they're an incumbent given how big they are. So I've looked at a lot of companies in the fintech space figuring out how they can actually serve customers better, and especially the younger generation, how the younger generation wants to bank and wants to manage money.
5: So a lot of those companies, at least as far as I know, don't have a branch on the corner. So how do you, how do you take a digital native and help them create a physical presence?
2: So the physical presence, you know, there's the literal physical presence, but there's also what I'll call the physical skills that are required. How do you shape your ecosystem? How do you survive over time? And so if you think about the physical presence, there's just branches, and there will be fewer of those in the future. Um, But more importantly, you've got to be thinking about with whom are you going to partner, because no organization is going to be able to do everything all themselves. You know, Whether you are partnering with people for payments, whether you want to offer services such as banking or, or mortgages or other things that people might want, you look at most of the large financial, you know, FinTech companies and financial services companies, they generally started with a best-of-class solution in one area and then expanded it out. And in my research, what I found, I think FinTech and financial services, unlike any industry, is one where companies immediately start expanding into adjacent areas to get growth. And so you look at a company like Stripe and what they did with helping people with Stripe Connect, you know, being able to um, open up bank accounts and be able to do all these things to get their companies going, you really have to get into that mindset of what do my customers need, what do they want to do and how do I deliver a full suite of services? Sometimes that might be a physical presence. Sometimes it might be a completely digital presence. But, you know, as the younger generation, as they continue to aggregate assets, as all younger generations do over time, what they want to do with their money, how they want to manage their money changes, right? So um, a woman or a man in her or his 20s or 30s might think differently about how they manage their finances in their 40s, 50s, and 60s.
5: For sure. I would hope so. (laughs) I would hope so. You've researched some amazing companies. You mentioned your research. And you also bring a lot of really cool companies into your class Mm -hmm. at Stanford. I think I read that you have the CEO of Lyft there Mm -hmm. and just these amazing folks. Um, What's one of your favorite stories from having one of those businesses in the classroom?
2: Ooh, one of my favorite stories. It's always the unexpected. And so I think one of my favorite stories, I had Dan Rosenzweig, the CEO of Chegg, uh, and if you remember, Chegg started as a, an organization that rented textbooks.
5: I rented from them. Uh, yeah, okay. I still get their emails. <laughs> exactly. yeah. all three of our
2: children, <laughs> when they went to university, used Chegg. And yet, Chegg has now become much more about education, right? You know, tutoring and a lot of the services. And Dan was a really big thinker. And so he talked a lot about the role of education in society. Um, we have this stereotype of the average person in our universities is 18 to 22 and drinking a lot of beer. And there are a lot of people like that. But Dan would actually highlight that the real average person in our country going to a university is 26 years old and has a child, and so the question that Dan's trying to taught we spent a lot of time talking about is what's the role of education in universities in society? You know, especially with, how's it different from a private school versus a public school? How do you blend digital and physical? How do you make it such that people can't get degrees if they have to have jobs at the same time? And so what was really kind of fun is we thought it was going to be about renting textbooks, and it really turned into one of these much broader societal discussions. And I think when these things, when you're blending digital and physical, you you talk about how things completely get reshaped. Shaped. When we had uh, Baijubat, the former co CEO of Robinhood and, and one of the founders, into class, we actually had a very deep philosophical discussion, not just about trading stocks, but about what was their purpose. You know, you talk to the founders of Robinhood, and they talked about wanting to democratize access to the financial system. And we were really able to go deep on that topic. And this is something that couldn't have been possible without the rise of mobile phones, without the rise of giving people access to, to the financial markets. And the, by the way, there are downsides to it as we have seen. Right. And so we actually, you know, years before we had meme stocks, years before we had GameStop, we had an unbelievably heated debate in the classroom about whether Robinhood was good or bad. And so those are kind of the fun, unexpected things that when you get to teach you know the most amazing men and women from all over the world you know in the classroom you just don't know what's going to happen and that's the magic of being in the classroom
5: and you never know what's going to come out of a bright young student's mouth (laughs) exactly
2: and they're really smart like the students are absolutely incredible and they see the world in ways because they're not encumbered by the past and that's part of what makes it so much fun
5: when you started the course at Stanford, I think you had one thesis about disruption and incumbents, and you were maybe proven wrong. Can you tell me about that?
2: So sure. So Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box, reached out to me. He had been working with a gentleman named Max Vessel, who's now the Chief Learning Officer at SAP, around this idea of the industrialist dilemma. And I would known Aaron, and he called me up and said, "Hey Rob, I have an idea for a class," and I thought it was a great idea, so we started teaching it. And the thesis was, okay, let's face it, Silicon Valley was going to destroy everything. The dinosaurs were doomed, uh, and and the next generation was going to take over. And I thought that would be kind of fun to teach. And for the first time, it would be like, okay, now Silicon Valley isn't just going into tech businesses. It's going into mainstream businesses, mobility, health care, et cetera. Yeah. And boy, were we wrong. Like, we could not have been more wrong. What we found was that you know, so many of these businesses, um, because they move more slowly – that a lot of incumbents had time to react. And the men and women running those companies were really, really attuned to what was going on in Silicon Valley and how things changed. Their challenges were changing their organizations. But we saw some amazing companies that were doing a a fantastic job. You know, Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target came and he talked about how he was transforming that organization. We had Julie Sweet, the CEO of Accenture talk about how she was transforming her company. And that was incredible. And then we had some disruptors come in and you think, okay, they're gonna be ordained. And you realize that a lot of them didn't have the competencies and knowledge Mm. of what was required to be successful, how to work with government. Um, You know, you can't, this notion of go fast and break things doesn't work if you're designing an aircraft engine. Right. Not everything should be designed with Agile and Scrum. (laughs) And so what we found was that, you know, it was, it was incumbents were not doomed and disruptors were not ordained. Um, The pandemic actually accelerated that people who got the best of digital and physical really pulled away from the field, and so I think what happened was, is, is, is the pandemic, what it highlighted is, if a company hadn't already started on this, they were in big trouble.
5: I love that you said, you know, move fast and break things. That's that's a that's such an important thing for the banking industry, where the mm-hmm. margin for error is so small. You you have to be right most of the time, and. In our work at the Alloy Labs Alliance, uh, we work with a lot of banks and help them partner with startups, mm-hmm. not always in the FinTech space, sometimes completely adjacent. And when they work with banks and realize for the first time the level of regulation yes. and compliance that goes into this, uh, a lot of them just like have no idea what to do with that. Well, I
2: remember <laughs> when I was talking with Walt Bettinger, and the CEO of Schwab, and he said, look, we will never have a venture arm, at least at least in the foreseeable future, never is a strong, a lo- strong word with a long time, because he said most of the startups didn't really understand Understand what was involved in having to work with government, and and there are so many things about how government involvement, not only in this, these types of sectors like fintech and how important that is, but that's becoming increasingly important. As I would argue economic ideology becomes the basis of global geopolitical conflict in the 21st century And so the average business leader needs to know how to navigate through how to work with government And not just the government in the country in which they're domiciled But you've got to deal with global governments In the old days that you have a, a global you know, a global company, of Fortune 50, Fortune 100, they knew they had to deal with global things. But now, like, I teach out of my home office. I have a television studio in my home office. There was one day a few weeks ago where I was teaching a group of people in Oman in the morning, South Korea in the late afternoon, and Kuala Lumpur late at night. Mm-hmm. And so, even, you know, somebody who just kind of hangs out a shingle is dealing with different cultures, different governments, different responsibilities. And, and, and so, and some of that's digital, and some of it's also physical if I go and visit them. And so, business leaders today really need to understand how to work with government. That's an advantage incumbents have. That's not an excuse to move slowly, (laughs) but it is an advantage they have.
5: How do you see incumbents turning the corner on that slow-moving thing and and finding a way to innovate at a quicker speed?
2: There's risk that's taken by experimenting with partnering outside of your organization. You have to get rid of non invented here. Um, You see them... If not investing, trying to find ways, you know, whether even if it's lead generation, sharing leads between organizations, you'll learn about another company if you send them leads and they send you leads. Um, there's also the ability to embed maybe their products or services in your products and services, because very few companies can do it all alone. Um, I really think what will be the hardest thing for the large incumbent organizations is the cultural change. Now, the thing about cultural change is it's the easiest thing to change. You know, you don't have to bend light in a way that light's never been bent before. That's literally physically impossible. But if you need people to change, you're going to have to figure out how are you going to get them to get from point A to point B. And by the way, the people who won't get it, how do you coach them out? Because they can't stay. Right. And so, you know, I think a lot of the large incumbents are going to have to spend just as much time knowing how to manage inside as outside. Um, One of the things I talk about in another one of my courses, systems leadership, is how important it is for um, leaders today to understand in a world where everything's connected, where information is flowing back and forth what's the interaction between functions inside of an organization? How does your organization impact with people inside of its ecosystem? And what's what's the, the causal string of events that happen when two companies interact? Who in your ecosystem is under stress? And if they're under stress, what are they likely to do? Like, are they kind of like a cornered or caged animal? And so you've got to be anticipating these kinds of things. And I think that's what real leaders are going to have to do there are some fintech companies who are established who get it, some who are struggling with it. Some incumbents will make it, some incumbents won't.
5: That takes an immense amount of EQ and uh-huh. social navigation, yeah. which is something that I don't think people always see tied mm-hmm. to tech industry folks.
2: Uh, and by the way, I think the biggest problems of silicon valley right now globally is because of the hubris and arrogance that has developed increasingly over the last 30 years um we're going to tell you what's better for you because we know like we're changing the world to make it better but without even really bothering to understand if somebody's living a different existence how, are they, how do they view the world? And so I think Silicon Valley is getting what it deserves. And by the way, I'm at the heart of it, right? You don't have venture capitalists. Right. Yeah, I ran startups. Yeah. You know, I'm at Stanford where so some could say we're like the ground zero of it for better or for worse. And so your point about EQ is it's one of those things that, that I think Silicon Valley has struggled with. And I, I would argue even in the last five to six years, there's been talk about it, but very little change. And so um, Silicon Valley has a choice to make right now, whether or not they want to continue to kind of bring the world along uh, and and help the world as opposed to telling the world what's best for them.
5: Mm. Well, let's talk about let's keep let's stay in this space for a second. So you're a general partner at Exceed Capital and a venture partner at Piva Piva. Thank Uh you. So you have the opportunity to, to look at a lot of these companies mm-hmm. in, in a level of detail that other folks don't get access to. What are you typically looking for in a company that you're interested in working with?
2: Fundamentally, the role of a venture capitalist is to do one thing. Give Katrina Lake or Mark Zuckerberg a million dollars before anybody else does. <laughs> VCs do not change the world. We don't make it a better place. Don't believe the marketing on the, on the websites and everything else. It's all BS our job is to find great entrepreneurs and when they call us because they need help, take their calls. They, that, congratulations, you now know everything you need to know, Amber, about how to be a venture capital. All
5: right, let's
2: roll up our um, Broadly yeah. speaking though, then the question is what sort of things are you looking for? So you, the first thing I think you, you over-index on is great entrepreneurs. We find great entrepreneurs have the following characteristics number one they're energy creators that doesn't mean that they're flashy it means that it can get you excited about what they're doing they can get it excited for customers for recruiting even separating me from my money uh, the second thing is they're problem solvers it's tuesday there's a brick wall in front of us are we going over it through it around it underneath it uh, yeah there's problems of course there's problems there's always problems in business i think the third thing is is they're truth seekers they have a fierce desire um to get it right and not to be right it's not that they will do what they're told to do. It's not that they will do what their vision is, it's that they are trying to figure out what's the right answer. And if they come up with the inside great, if somebody on their team can come up with the inside great, the truth seekers are the ones who really just want to win. And then the last one is I like to say they're, they're, they're impatient, a little impatient, or said differently. You want an entrepreneur who is a little bit broken, but not a lot broken. You know, you, you want an entrepreneur who kind of says, yeah, I know the statistics are against me, but... I'm going to pull this off. And you have to have that mindset of, I'm trying to drive change. And then you have to look for a market that has the potential to be very big. The economics of venture capital require disproportionate returns. Um, Because where you are on the frontier of risk reward, most of your, six of your 10 investments, you're going to lose all your money. Three of your investments, you're going to make one to three X. You need that 10th investment to be Godzilla, to basically deliver a 20 X return. So you've got to look for a big opportunity, a big market and a great entrepreneur. And then you hope you get lucky. And luck is the single most important variable when it comes to venture. VCs often don't say that out loud, but when you get the third beer in them, that's what they'll say.
5: That's really funny. <laughs> so that takes a ton of EQ on a capitalist part as well mm-hmm. to be able to identify those people. And
2: Yeah, you really need to have a combination, I think, whether you're in an operating role or as an investor, especially going forward, of combining IQ and EQ, combining digital and physical, combining the ability to manage innovation, but also how to operate at scale. You know, I mean, operating at scale is a non-trivial task. The men and women who run these large financial service organizations are really good at what they do. And so if you have a startup that hopes to scale and kind of break through and change things, their ability to survive over time, you better learn how to operate at scale, how to hit your numbers, how to make sure that you know what's going to happen, how to make things more deterministic in an undeterministic world.
5: There's a natural symbiosis there with those strengths playing off Mm -hmm. of one another which kind of leads us to bank and fintech partnerships in my world bank fintech partnerships have been a thing for quite a while mm-hmm. right. <laughs> so what are you seeing that's changed or shifted recently and
2: i think that's the the, the key thing i'm going to say that it's, you see changes on both the front end and the back end i think you see a lot of the big banks in particular moving towards working with uh, cloud and infrastructure providers to use other people's technologies um, in ways that they didn't in the past Right. And it's accelerating. So, you know, the, 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 you talk to any cybersecurity company, anybody else, they'd say, they'd go talk to the large, the large financial institutions and they'd say, we want an on-premise solution. And we say, no, no, it's got to be in the cloud. And then three years later, the financial services company calls them back and it's in the cloud. And I think you're going to see a continued acceleration to the cloud. And I think you'll see the fintech companies work to partner with large, um, technology providers on, on the infrastructure. I think you're going to see a lot more fluidity in, I think you're going to need to see increasingly a, people need to have global footprints, um, whether you're a startup or a large organization. So how are you going to partner with particular banks, particular uh, financial services organizations that will allow you to deliver a global solution when your customers need a global solution? Um, I remember I was talking to the CEO of Standard Chartered Bank, and, and Bill was talking about how what their footprint throughout Asia and throughout the Middle East, offers solutions for their customers that other people can't. I think you're going to start to find, we see it in the media industry, and I think you're going to see it increasingly in FinTech, a much stronger global set of network of partnerships that will allow organizations to work together. And then, of course, finally on the front end, How do you deliver a great digital experience that especially the younger generation, you know, increasingly wants to use? I I can't remember the last time I went into a branch of of a bank. You know, I bank all the time online. I've got more apps on my phone than you could imagine. But as I watch my children ages 23 to 19, (laughs) I watch how they expect to interact, not only with each other uh, and with their friends, but also with companies they do business with. And so I think you're going to see a lot, of, a lot more of partnering, and the lines are going to start to blur a lot more. And so I think it's going to be a really dynamic next 10 years.
5: Curious, this idea of kind of globalization and, and mm-hmm. getting those big partners who can really help you on the incumbent side. Curious how you think that might scale to community-sized banks, you know, the $1 billion mm-hmm. asset bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma, let's say.
2: So I think those banks, their value add will be customer service, high touch, and knowing their people. Uh, I think there's frustration with, on the consumer side in particular, with dealing with the large banks, that it's almost impossible to get somebody. You feel like the banks don't care. um, When there's a problem, it takes a long time to get it resolved. And what might be a small issue for a large bank could be, you know, a $100 error, or a $100 charge that maybe is unwarranted or unfair. Getting that solved can matter a lot for an individual, um, and it's a rounding error for somebody else. So I think the community banks, that ability to be responsive and quick of, hi, I've got a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, can you help with it? And being able to respond quickly, that's how they will hold on to their customers. It might mean that they end up staying a little bit smaller, but maybe they can partner. You know, hey, by the way, you want to send payments to an organization, pay your bills. Okay, we we can, you know, plug into somebody else's infrastructure, even if it's branded with us on the front, right? You can find that they'll give some of the the, the benefits of digitization, but still have that high touch.
5: Rob, what do you wish I would have asked you that I didn't?
2: What's going to happen on globalization as we have different tech infrastructure stacks and privacy and what's going on with cybersecurity? I think these are existential issues that are confronting, um, especially the fintech industry today. Um, You know, there are pluses and minuses of decentralized finance. That money is right now, everything that's going on now it is pure speculation. I mean that's cut the cut the noise. It's pure speculation. and money is made and lost during times of speculation. You know these we're not seeing transactions really be conducted, so it's not really acting as currencies. it's acting as a store of value. Um, and since there's nothing really behind it, it's pure speculation. That doesn't mean it won't matter over time. And so I think all of these issues of of the, the capabilities of the technology stack are interesting. But you've got some big global players who care deeply about making sure there's stability in the economy, making sure there's security in the economy. And so I think what's important for people to understand is the sexiness and the excitement of the new technology the coefficient of that variable is actually quite small relative to the bigger issues that are going on between governments, between nation states, um, and, and, and even the everyday person who wants to make sure that that transaction is going to be conducted when they want to buy a loaf of bread or a bottle of water to know that it's safe. Um, and those are not small issues, and they require big government involvement, and they will have big government involvement whether you want it or not. Right.
5: Sounds like big things are in store
2: there are the fundamental structural changes going on in society right now which sometimes hurt my head when i think about them <laughs> i was recently um reviewing the book future shock by alvin toffler it was written in 1970 and it's scary how prescient it was he talked about influencers he talked about the rental economy this was 51 years ago Right, so like every everybody thinks that this stuff's all new in the last decade, and it's not. Mm-hmm. And so we can see some of these trends, and we can extrapolate what's happening right now. I think there are big things going on, and a lot of it's very exciting, especially for the younger generation. You're going to get to do some amazing things in your life that, that I didn't get to do when I had operating roles. On the other hand, there are, because everything is so interconnected, the speed with which things are going to change and the risk of this fast change is non-trivial.
5: Well, good words to end on. Thank you so much. Tell, tell folks where they can find you, Rob. You
2: can find me at robertesiegel.com, S-I-E-G-E-L. My, uh, I'm also on the my faculty website, is at Stanford University, uh, and uh, I'm always happy to engage. I'm also on Twitter, as at Rob Siegel.
5: At Rob Siegel. And you also have a book, The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of Digital and Physical. You can
2: buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your favorite bookstore near you.
5: <laughs> Physically, right? <laughs> Physically. Get the paper copy, hand over some cash. While while you're at it. <laughs> don't,
2: you don't have to use cash. You, you, you can use a credit card okay, or you okay. can use Apple Pay, whatever it is you want to do. But you can buy the book. <laughs> perfect.
5: Perfect. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thanks and for having
2: me.
5: You can't wait to see oh. what you do next.
1: That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a
0: five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.